You're listening to Cutaneous Miscellaneous, the Dermatology Residence Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Cutaneous Miscellaneous. It's the podcast where we maximize your potential as a dermatology resident and maximize your board scores while having some fun along the way. And speaking of maximizing your board scores, I'm so thrilled to announce Cutaneous Miscellaneous Boards Booster. We had a soft launch these past few episodes, but now I want to formally introduce this new and exciting feature. Each episode will feature board review questions and full explanations written by current dermatology residents and fellows sourced from key resources like Bologna Dermatology, Andrews Dermatology, and the very popular Ali Khan Review of Dermatology. And the questions will be the same topic as the board review portion discussed on that episode. So I know this will help you keep your knowledge as sharp as a 15 blade. And speaking of education, this episode is going to be jam-packed. And I'm so excited to announce that we have a celebrity as our special guest today. And he's not a famous Hollywood actor or a sports star. He's a dermatopathology celebrity, one of the only few in the world, I think. So it's a pleasure to welcome Dr. Jared Garner to the show. Thank you for having me. And thanks for the kind words. Of course, Dr. Gardner, I just got to say before we start, you know, your voice is so awesome. It's so soothing. And I've listened to you. No one has you. ever told me that in my life that I have a soothing voice, but thank you. Your, your voice is soothing uh, for many different reasons. So funny story, you know, I went to, uh, obviously I was pre-med in college and I went to Cornell, very difficult pre-med. And I took chemistry and physics and I had taken those courses before. So I had some background, but uh, I decided to take Spanish in college, which I'd never taken before. And the first day of class, it was intro class. So it was uno, dos, tres, and mucho gusto, me llamo Nick. And I had no background in Spanish. So it was so hard to start from scratch. And my point is in dermatology, we, I knew some dermatology from medical school, but dermatopathology, pretty much no resident ever has any introduction or any training on that in their uh, pre-dermatology years. So you're starting from scratch and it's so important to find great resources uh, when you're starting from scratch. And your YouTube channel, your book has been such a blessing to me and other dermatology residents, I'm sure, feel the same way. So thank you for what you do. We're so excited to have you here. We're going to get started. But before I get started, I have to ask you a question. I know you know a lot about dermatopathology, but I have to ask, do you know which dermatopathology diagnosis you can only make during Halloween time? Hmm. Uh, no. What? Okay. It's, it's dermatofibroma with monster cells. Oh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> so Very you can only make nice. it on October 31st. So with that, let's get started. Dr. Gardner, first, can you help me and some of the residents uh, give us some tips on preparing for the dermatopathology core and the derm path portion of the applied exam? So, I mean, the disclaimer first is that I'm not a dermatologist by training. I'm a pathologist. So I've never taken any of those exams, but I mean, I've trained, uh, residents for, for some years now. And I've also asked residents uh, over the years about you know what they've done to prepare. I mean, I think that, that really there's, there's not a, an easy shortcut, you know, but, but I think the most important thing is really seeing a lot of slides. And whether that's virtual slides or glass slides or images, any of those things are good. But you know, don't, just, don't just look at one picture of each entity, but try to see a few different pictures in that, I think, or a few different examples that helps you kind of cement the, the range of features you can see for each entity into your mind. So I think uh, I, I really, I think there's kind of a different school of thought between pathology, uh, pathologist background learning derm path and dermatologist learning derm path. Dermatologists often learn from like low power silhouette, which I actually think is a faster way to learn derm path. Pathologists, because of the nature of the way we approach 
other forms of pathology, we often kind of have a building, building the diagnosis from like layer by layer, putting all the cells together, which is totally fine. And both, both, uh, different styles have their strength, but I think for learning and for getting, being quick on an exam, learning that low power architecture and the silhouette, I think is really important. So, so beginning to know like, you know, each of the different entities and what they look like at low power and recognizing them without having to go to high power not everything can be done that way, but that, that makes you quicker and it's a faster way to learn. Obviously in real life, there's a lot more nuance, but for, for testing purposes, I think that's a helpful approach. I love that. The more slides, the better. Learn it on low power. Um, that's really key. If you have to go in, you can, but low power is really where the money is for the most part. How about some tips on all the stains and immunohistochemical stains that we need to know? Any way to learn that besides just rote memorization. Yeah, that part is hard. And I think that when I when I was a trainee, um, and obviously in, in pathology, there's even more stains because there's stuff that we don't really use in the skin. But, but I remember feeling as I got into my second year of pathology training, even like, man, how will I ever know all these stains? And let me tell you, I'm um, in my 11th year of practice now, I guess. And um, I still learn about new stains that I'm like, what is that? I mean, usually outside of Dermpath, but still there's always new stains coming out. So I, the struggle's real. And if you're a, a resident thinking, feeling overwhelmed, I mean, that I still feel overwhelmed by sometimes too. I think learning the, the main most important stains is the, the key. Don't have to know every single stain. And I think the other thing that's helpful is rather than reading a table of all the stains, which is super boring, and I just have never been able to easily learn that way. But as you are looking at each entity, think about what stains would be positive in this squamous cell carcinoma or this basal cell carcinoma, and what would be negative in some of the things that would mimic it. And I think that's helpful because to me, it gives me kind of like a frame of reference and it, it shows me like, the practical utility of these stains, even though we don't always do stains on each of these entities, but it begins to help me to understand, oh, all of these things that are keratinocyte tumors, either benign or malignant, they're going to be positive for a high molecular weight keratin like CK56. They're going to have nuclear positivity for P63 and P40. They'd be negative for melanocytic markers like SOX10, S100, MART1. So it begins to give you kind of groups of diseases that stain the same or, or differently and to help you understand where, where maybe you would never learn, like, what does a seborrheic keratosis stain with? I don't know who stains those. We don't do that. Well, it'll stain with P40, P63, CK56, because it's made of keratinocytes, just like the epidermis is, just like a squamous cell carcinoma is. And so I think you can begin to kind of intuit what the answer might be, even if you don't know. And again, it just gives you like a, a kind of, I don't know, the way I think is I have this kind of visual box. And until I've kind of seen a disease, it's really hard for me to learn factoids about it. Maybe your brain doesn't work that way, but that's how mine does. So I think that's really Really helpful is to think about the stains as you're looking at slides and going through entities, and it makes it easier than reading a you know five-page table. I love that. You know, that's how I've been approaching it, just rote memorization, looking down each line on a table. But if you approach it practically, like you said, in the real world, how is this going to help me? Uh, and then as you look at the slides, what stains are going to be staining for? That's the best way to do it. So yeah. that was amazing. And one more board review topic I want to discuss is the Paisley tie differential. Uh, so could you walk me through that, what the entities are, and some tips on how to differentiate them very briefly? Sure. I mean, I think there's like four main entities that I think of in the Paisley tie or tadpole pattern. Um, and one of those is syringoma. The other one is uh, morpheiform basal cell carcinoma or infiltrative pattern basal cell carcinoma. And those two are usually the kind of easiest ones. Syringomas usually have obvious ducts, multiple ducts, and they're, they're clearly ductal and, and 
they're small usually. So that's pretty easy. Basal cell carcinoma usually is pretty easy because there will, if you have a big enough biopsy, you should have some areas that look like regular basal cell carcinoma, or you may not have much clefting, but there will often be some area that gives you a hint of like, that looks more like a basal cell, even though the little trickly areas can look quite like other things in the Paisley tie differential. But the biggest difficulty is the other two entities, and that's desmoplastic trichoepithelioma and microcystic adnexal carcinoma. Now, or MAC. And MAC is very, very rare. I've only seen a few in my whole career, but uh, it to me can have areas that look essentially identical to desmoplastic trichoepithelioma. They both can have little keratin-filled microcysts at the top. They both have bland, non-atypical uh, cords of keratinocytes. MAC should have ducts, sweat ducts, but the problem is that a superficial shave doesn't always show those. So the biggest thing I want to tell the difference there is a bigger, deeper biopsy is usually the most helpful thing to be able to see the base. And MAC usually infiltrates deeply down into the fat and beyond. They often have perineural invasion, although um, more recently we've people have discovered that um, that desmoplastic trichoepitheliomas also can involve nerves, which is not the way I was taught. It goes against everything I was taught, but a very nice paper from the Yale group a few years back showed that. So, so that feature alone doesn't totally tell them apart, even though a lot of books will say that that is helpful. One other thing I do like uh, to help tell those apart is an immunostain called cytokeratin 20 or CK20, which most derm residents will recognize as the stain that stains Merkel cell carcinoma with that little dot-like pattern. Well, the interesting thing is it will also stay normal Merkel cells, benign Merkel cells, and benign Merkel cells often colonize benign hair follicle tumors like desmoplastic trichoepithelioma and also trichoblastomas and other conventional trichoepitheliomas. So finding scattered cytokeratin 20 positive cells in a a paisley tie pattern lesion is a good support for it being desmoplastic trichoepithelioma. Not 100%, but it's helpful. And there have been a variety of other stains proposed, but the one that I've found helpful over the years is that, and I actually do use that from time to time in my, my regular practice. So that's a basic approach to the paisley tie pattern. Awesome. Beautiful approach. I know it's a confusing topic for me, but you broke that down so beautifully. And I'll just add how these things look clinically to be complete. So desmoplastic trichoep is usually a donut-shaped tumor on the cheek of a young female. MAC or microcystic agnexal carcinoma, you're going to see a firm plaque on the upper lip, medial cheek or chin. More fearform basal cell, this is described as a scar-like lesion in an older patient. And syringomas are kind of small skin-colored papules kind of on the lower eyelid area. So that's how it looks clinically. We've learned the histology. And Dr. Gardner, do you own any Paisley ties? No, I don't think that I have. <laughs> I have seen them before. And I think I wore one once like when I was a teenager or something that I borrowed from my dad maybe, but I don't own any. I never, I didn't know what that looked like. I looked it up online. It's an ugly kind of tie. It's not, I would never not a modern look, yeah. That. Not a modern look. But if you're a dermatopathologist, perhaps it's uh, it's the cool thing to wear at the conferences. So I've never been to one, but but perhaps, uh, you know, that's what everyone's wearing. So that's awesome. Dr. Garner, let's move on to the main portion of the episode. The meat of the episode is learning dermatopathology as a first year, second year, and third year. As you grow up in residency, it, what you learn changes and your knowledge changes. So I want to first ask for all the first year residents listening when I started dermatology, this was by far the hardest topic to learn. So can you give the first year residents some advice on how to approach a slide and how to begin tackling this huge subject 
this amazing subject, but huge daunting subject when someone first starts. Yeah, I mean, I, you're right. It is hard, and and so I think the first step is like be be gentle with yourself. Okay, you, you all feel I'm so stupid at this. I'm not good at this because I know how dermatology residents are. They're very driven and very Type A and very hard on themselves. And there's I'm not. I know I'm stereotyping, but it's also true, and you know it. Uh, for the vast majority of the derm residents I've met, and I love those features and qualities in my dermatology residents, and I I share many of those qualities myself. And so I know that it's easy to be hard on yourself when you uh, hit a topic that's difficult to learn, but it can be learned. It does take some time. I think the first step is, yes, understand that, yes, everyone struggles with this in general, so that you're not alone. And the other thing is to, to, you have to start with learning normal histology. You need to know what normal skin looks like and what the different components of the skin are and the layers and all of that, okay? That's a, a really important thing because then you'll begin to recognize what abnormal is and you'll begin to also draw parallels when you see something going on to say, this is different and here's what it looks like. It kind of reminds me of a hair follicle or or this epidermis is something's wrong with the basal layer and it's because it's an interface dermatitis. So that's, I think, important. Um, the The then I think begin to learn the the easy things. Learn the things that are both common and so you know common and well known entities, not the rare esoterica, and the things that have uh, you know that are that have an obvious recognizable pattern: the basal cell carcinoma, squamous cells, SEBs, AKs. I feel like a lot of people struggle with actinic keratosis versus squam versus seborrheic keratosis versus veruca. And guess what? I still struggle with those in my daily practice like almost every day. So maybe there's some other derm paths out there that will scoff at that and be like, ah, Jared Gardner is such a noob. But I'm telling you, like it's it's real. Like these keratinocyte things are seem like they should be bread and butter, but they're kind of hard. So learn the straightforward ones and recognize that sometimes in when you're sitting at the scope looking and you're like, why did they call that an AK? Yeah, sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes there's overlap. It's not easy to draw lines on those things sometimes. The other thing is for inflammatory derm, begin to learn the main patterns, right? Spongiotic, vacuolar interface, lichenoid interface, um, granulomatous, superficial and deep perivascular. Learn those patterns and to recognize those. And then you can use that plus the clinical information to help you sort out what the differential is. And you, as you all know, like sometimes we cannot put a, a pin on this is the name of the entity. In fact, a lot of times we don't in Dermpath, but we're trying to help you as a dermatologist to rule out, yeah, X, Y, and Z on your differential. No way can it be that. Maybe it could be entity A or B, and entity C is the most likely. So we're kind of helping you to stratify what's most likely based on the clinical. The one advantage you have as a dermatologist is you know the names of many of these entities, and a lot of other doctors never heard of pityriasis, lichenoides, that variable form of secuta, or whatever it is. So the fact that you know these entities exist, then you can begin to put together, well, this pattern and that go together with it. So that's kind of starting at the basics for for beginners. Awesome. You know, I'll add to that. You're right. You can't learn this overnight. And it took me about a year uh, to really get a little bit under my belt. But now I feel like, hey, trichoepithelium versus trichoblastoma. How did I never not know the difference? This is so easy. So if you put the time in and give it time, things will work out well for you and you'll learn this stuff. It's not rocket science. It does take time and some basics, learning the normal first, but you will get there. How about tips for approaching a slide? Do you have a way that you do it? Or how do you recommend people starting out? Or, or, or is there no tips at all? You just read the slide. No, I mean, I think everyone maybe has a different way, but the the way that I've kind of uh, developed for myself over time, I guess kind of organically, is I put the, the slide down and I put it on my 2x or whatever my lowest power is. I try to not look at any history first. I just put the slide down cold and see what I think is going on. And the first, you can... 
you can take a top-down approach, and that's okay at the beginning to learn how to describe what's wrong with the stratum corneum. What about the rest of the epidermis? Is the basal layer okay? What about the dermis? But I also usually just try to look and say, what's abnormal here? And sometimes the answer stands out right away. If it does, great. Then I try to figure out what that is. If it doesn't, then I go into the like layer-by-layer mode of where it's like, I don't see what's obviously wrong here. That's when it's helpful to kind of break it apart piece at a time to make sure you don't miss anything. But in general, I usually just look and say, oh, there's a big pink nodular lesion that's extending down with islands in the dermis and it's got perikeratosis and some is trapped down in there and there's atypia. I think this is invasive squamous cell carcinoma or, or whatever. So that's kind of my approach. And then I look and see, does it make sense with the clinical? So I usually try to look at it cold and then check to see if it matches with the clinical. It's just a good way to keep the most open mind possible and not get kind of like pigeonholed into a corner or biased by the clinical history, which I hesitate to say because I don't ever want someone to not give me clinical information for fear of biasing me, I will work on not biasing myself. Don't worry. I'm well-trained in how to do that as are all dermatopathologists. So um, I think that that's, that's a, but it is helpful to make sure that you approach a slide openly. And then the other thing is you can use some clues to help you look at the skin around the lesion. Don't just look at the thing in the middle, look at the edges of the tissue. What kind of patient is this from? Where on the body is it from? Is it acral skin? Do you see a thick corneal layer and, and obvious acral findings? Do you see uh, uh, lots of sebaceous glands is it from the face of an adult? Uh, is there solar elastosis there? Then that's probably from an older adult. Um, you can use some of those clues to help you decide whether the entity that you're considering calling it is likely or unlikely, right? If it's from the acral skin, it's probably not going to be something that usually only occurs on the genitals. If you're, you know, if it's sun damaged adult, then you might want to be hesitant calling it a spitz nevis, you know, or something like that. So I think those kind of context clues can be really helpful, especially on an exam where they may not be giving you any clinical information, but you can kind of not cheat, but you can kind of pick up some clues from the background tissue. And that's actually something I use in my daily practice as a, as hints to help me figure out how worried I should be about certain things or not worried based on the context of how the skin looks around the, the tumor, you know? Awesome. So every first year listening will automatically be way better tomorrow, which is great. That was some awesome tips. And I learned a lot too, and I've already been doing this for about a year. So now I'm a second year resident. And for my second year resident colleagues uh, in dermatology, you had some background knowledge, you had some basic knowledge of derm path, but how do you take it to the next level now? And I love what you said about integrating stains and markers. As you look at the slides, think about the stains and markers, but what else can I be doing? My colleagues that are in the middle of their dermatology residency, uh, take their dermatopathology uh, knowledge to the next level now. Yeah, I think there, now you've got like, you know, your main entities and your main patterns. So begin to put together, what's your differential? So, and you can, you can do that even when you don't have to, is you can think what other entities could mimic basal cell carcinoma or trichoepithelioma or what are the things in the Paisley tie pattern? And I know dermatologists generally are really good on this because you guys have all sorts of acronyms and mnemonics and stuff to remember all the different things. Sometimes they're so complex that I, I can remember what the mnemonic is, but I can't remember what all the letters stand for. So for maybe I'm just too simple minded to be able to do it, but <laughs> I had some residents come up with some pretty wild stuff over the years that I'm like, I don't know how you remember all that, but it's, but it's really creative and I like it. So I think that's helpful though, is thinking, thinking about what would be in the differential here and how would I tell it apart? What would be the thing to help me tell it apart? And also recognize that some things are not easily distinguished even by experts. So I know some over the years, many times residents have asked, well, how would I tell this and that? And I'm like, I don't know. When you figure it out, let me know. Because in practice, I kind of regard these as two ends of the same spectrum and I can't reliably tell them apart. And books won't always, I mean, 
I don't know, maybe, okay, maybe let me rephrase. I was going to say, books won't always be honest with you about that. It's not that the authors are trying to lie, but I think sometimes in books, we have a tendency to want to make things fit nicely into the box, but recognize that in the real world, they don't sometimes. And, and uh, that's just how it is. And so uh, if you struggle with something, sometimes it's not because there's a problem with you, but it's just because it's hard and no one knows an easy way to, to solve these things. But I think that's helpful is to think of the differential, think of what stains you might use or what clinical info you might use to sort that out. And, and that'll begin to bring you to the next level. Awesome. Yeah. One thing I'm doing now is looking at all these dermatopathology diagnoses and looking at what they look like clinically because am I ever going to see a tumor of the follicular infundibulum? Who knows? And a lot of these things are just skin-colored bumps and they're, they're the biopsy diagnoses, but some of these things do have some unique uh, clinical morphology like a desmopathic trichoep, for example. So I, I think that's a good thing to start doing now as well. One of my, that you said TFI, tumor of the follicular infundibulum, and it reminded me of a really very, very brilliant and skilled dermatology colleague that I have who sent in a biopsy on like the left cheek or something and said, um, a tumor of follicular infundibulum question mark. And that was like it. And I was like, she's very good. But I was like, how, like, how could she yeah. possibly know? And I thought maybe they've had a biopsy before. And I looked and sure enough, years ago, they had had a biopsy and it was tumor of the follicular infundibulum, but it was on the opposite cheek, the exact opposite side. And so there was nothing to indicate, but she, I asked her later, I was like, how on earth did you know? She's like, well, it just looked kind of like that other one. And I thought just maybe, and I was like, that is a brilliant mind. So wow, it just reminded me of that moment. story. Totally amazing. Yeah. That's a mic drop moment. That's kind of a misnomer, right? Because that's more is ismic differentiation, not really infundibular oh, differentiation. Very is that good. True? Yeah, Tim McCalmont <laughs> has been pointing that out recently on uh, on Kiko, which is in, you know a newer um, medical social media site, and a lot of pathology and derm path stuff on there. And he was mentioning that on a, a case that that there's ismic dis differentiation, and so maybe tumor of the follicular infundibulum isn't really the best name. But I really like the ring of TFI, so I'll probably keep calling it that, even if it's a misnomer. I like that too. But tumor of the ismic differentiation. Perhaps we can advocate for that. It doesn't sound as good because that word's hard to say. So you yeah, right. sound kind of silly saying it. Uh, awesome. Okay. So Dr. Gardner, now third year residents, chief residents, you're about to graduate. So we want to take the knowledge to the next level, now the final level. And we want to do things like performing a CPC or handling situations where your path is not making sense. How can you help your dermatopathologist get the best diagnosis when you're in practice? Can you give me some tips like that for third year residency, chief year and beyond uh, when you're in an independent practice? Sure. I mean, I think that that really is the most important thing. If you're if you're not going into dermatopathology, the main reason to learn dermpath is, of course, to pass your boards, right? And and of course, we all have to do that kind of stuff. But but the more important thing long term is understanding dermpath from the perspective of practical use. Not even if you're not reading slides. Do the people reading your slides, the dermatopathologists reading your slides, do they know what they're doing? Do their diagnoses make sense? And having enough derm path knowledge to know, like, wait a second, that doesn't sound right, or that doesn't make sense for the site. And, and knowing if something doesn't seem to fit, call the derm path and talk to them, ask them what's going on. Or if you really don't think that, they, that the pathologist knows what they're doing, maybe get a consult on that case. You know, some things are really challenging and difficult and rare. Um, so I think that's important. I think recognizing the, the, the fact that, that clinical pathologic correlation is really important. That's a hugely important thing to understand. And you can learn that when you're on derm path service or studying for derm path in seeing that some of these things are absolutely impossible for us to sort out without clinical information. So when you're on the other side, on the dermatology clinic side, make sure you give us that information or give us your differential. And I know that all derms are 
trained in doing that. But sometimes when you get in practice and things get busy and the real world pressures, it's easy to just, you know, say rule out atypia. And, you know, I know if you say that, usually when people have told me that before, I know they're saying it's a pigmented lesion. They want to make sure it's not melanoma. Okay, that's fine. I understand the code. But when it comes to things like rashes or the patient has a complicated history, please take the time then to write down the info that will actually help me help you. Because I can give you a descriptive diagnosis, but is that really going to help you manage the patient? Sometimes it won't. And I want to give you the best most helpful thing. I do not like hedging. No, no derm path likes hedging. It's so much more fun to make a slam dunk diagnosis, period. We're done. No long comment needed, right? It's faster and more fun. So I don't hedge because I want to, but at the same time, you know, I've got to give you what I know and I can't always like, you know, um, say, well, let's just, you know, extrapolate and hope that this is right. I want to be honest about what I know and what I don't know and what the differences are. So that's, that's important to give that information. And a please, for the love of all things, give clinical photographs. I hope that all of the people listening know this already. Um, all the derm colleagues I work with are very good at that, but I cannot tell you how many times the clinical photograph, I had my diagnosis comment ready, and then I looked at the clinical photograph and I'm like, select all, delete. There's no way it can be what I was thinking because of what it looks like clinically. There's just no way. And you can write out a paragraph or you just give me that one or two photographs and I'm like, nope, not that. Or what I see definitely does not explain what's going on clinically. I had a case not long ago, some big, huge ulcerated area. And what I saw on the slide was like interface change. And I was like, I don't know what's going on, but this, what we see on the slide, something, but it does not explain that big ulcerated area. So they need to go back and re-biopsy that. Maybe two things are going on. I don't know. But all I know is that what I see on this slide does not explain that full clinical situation. So that the picture is able to do that in ways that that other people, you know, that no amount of good writing can can really get across sometimes. So I think that's really important. And, um, and you know, always make sure that if it doesn't make sense or you don't agree with the pathology, the time to have the discussion about that is today or tomorrow, not next year when something bad has happened. I'm never going to be upset if you call me and say, hey, you know, I this is it's hard for me to fit your path findings together with what I'm seeing. Can we talk about this? And and sometimes that is really helpful for me. And I'll go back and look at the slide and say, oh, with now that I understand more clearly what's going on, I think you're right. Maybe something else is happening or maybe I need to do a stain or do deepers. And man, I would rather be wrong and, and fix it tomorrow when no harm has come to the patient than find out later when it's too late to do anything. So if my ego ever gets in the way of me like being willing to talk to you or say, hey, I could be wrong or I'll send this for another opinion, then I don't have a right to be walking into this hospital and acting like I'm a doctor. So so that's my viewpoint on it. Other people can disagree, but that's the way I see things. So so those are some tips I think for the real world. You know, have pick up the phone and call your derm paths and be on a good good working relationship with them and make them comfortable calling you if they've got a question. I think part of that back and forth is just making sure that people both feel comfortable that when there is some uncertainty that there's not this hesitance like you don't want your first phone call between the this goes for pathologists and dermatologists from either direction. You don't want the first phone call to be when a specimen got lost in the lab in processing or when there's some real big problem. That's not a good time to be like, oh, hey, I'm Jared Gardner. Good to meet you, Nick. Um, yes. Yeah, so part A uh, dissolved in processing and we don't have any sample or, you know, there was a swap and, you know, those things are rare, but they can happen. And you don't want that to be the first time that you're establishing a relationship between the derm path and the dermatologist. So, so try to get to know each other on a, a basis, uh, a more happier note 
before those inevitable negative situations will arise. And then it makes it easier to deal with them when they do. Right. The dermatologist and dermatopathologist relationship is like a sacred relationship. You know, one can't exist without the other. So we have to, wherever you go, meet your derm pass by even by Zoom and just introduce yourself and it will just make your life and the derm pass life way easier. And I love what you said about those tips for independent practice and chief year. Now it's not just diagnosing something on a test or during your path uh, sign outs. We're taking care of patients now and people's well-being is on the line and we have to learn how to do that um, properly in practice every day. And those things you said are going to be really helpful. So Dr. Gardner, a couple more minutes here. For those interested, can you give me some tips on uh, improving your chances of getting into DermPath Fellowship or how to match in a DermPath Fellowship? I know you're involved in a DermPath uh, Fellowship program. So if people want to get into DermPath and want to match, what are some things they should be doing uh, or thinking about? Well, I would say one problem with DermPath is we don't yet have a real match. And so it's a little bit more chaos because of that. There have been attempts to standardize the timeline of, of applying and offering spots, but it's still never been 100% accepted and formalized by all of the DermPath programs. And that's an area that's under is being worked on, but it's quite different than most other fellowships in most other fields of medicine, to be quite honest. So, so that is a complicated uh, challenge in DermPath and other fellowships in the pathology world. So I think the other thing to know is that that you so that the problem is that oftentimes as a dermatologist you have to apply after your first year of dermatology residency. So your PGY the end of your PGY two year is when you're applying, and so that doesn't give you a lot of time. Your intern year is like you know, a lost year, right? You're so busy doing all the internship stuff or transitional year stuff. Then you get into Derm and you start thinking this Derm path stuff's cool. And before you know it, you've got to apply. So that I think is one uh, limitation or disadvantage to dermatology trained applicants is that they have to apply so early. So if you're thinking at all, like you might be interested in Derm path, try your best to get as much exposure and make that decision early. One benefit to dermatology trained people is that there, there in general is a, a larger amount, I think, of path trained people applying for Derm path than Derm trained. And I think all of us in the dermatopathology world want to make sure that we have a continued mixture of both derm-trained and path-trained people. Because to me, I think that's one of the cool and, I don't know, magical things about our field. I love that there's two different specialties that come together in the same subspecialty. And it's it's really unique. I mean, honestly, in all of the pathology subspecialties, there's nothing else really like this. And I think it's such a cool thing and we don't want to lose that. So so people are interested in retaining dermatology-trained people in dermapath fellowships. Also, all of you have good applications already by just the nature of the fact that you got into a dermatology residency, which is very competitive. Pathology is less competitive. So there's more of a range of application strengths that go into pathology. Whereas in derm, it's almost everybody has high, high step scores, usually with some, some publications related to derm um, and a variety of other things. And also I think uh, most dermatology residents have very good interviewing skills because again, you had to have those good interviewing skills to get the spot in dermatology in the first place. So those are some strengths that you have off the bat. The one thing I think is important to know upfront though, is that it is a competitive fellowship and, and go into it knowing that, that even really good people sometimes don't get a spot. Sometimes it's just totally the random luck of the draw, no matter how qualified you are, 
they were internal applicants or whatever, you know, but you often do want to apply broadly to most of the programs probably and recognize that it is competitive. And I know that, that people that are uh, dermatology residents are well acquainted with the hardships of the road to a competitive um, uh, spot. And so, you know what you're getting into, but just recognize that it is also competitive and, um, uh, but it's, it's not impossible to get a spot, but it, it's challenging. So the things are to, to, first of all, get to know your, your program's dermatopathologist early on in your training as early as possible and indicate that you have a potential interest in DermPath. Even if you're not totally decided, just let them know. They will go out of their way usually to try to help and nurture that DermPath skill and to get you plugged in, to encourage you to go to national meetings, to present posters, you know, like the American Society of DermPath meeting is a great meeting to go to. There's also the International Society of DermPath, which is also great. I think they're both really good meetings. Um, uh, I, I feel like the ASDP usually has something focused on um, uh, meet the fellowship program directors and things like that. So I really, if you had to pick one, I would probably pick ASDP, but purely for the sake of if you're trying to get a fellowship, there's a lot of opportunities to meet more fellowship directors there. And when you go to the meetings, you want to network. You know, I know it's hard to go out and put yourself on the line and, and introduce yourself to people, but go out, meet the program directors, meet the faculty at programs. You know, I think it's also good to have an online presence. I'm, I'm obviously a big fan of that. Not everyone likes that. And that's okay if it's not for you. But I think, you know, using Twitter or X, I guess, as it's now called, which I still not going to call it, uh, not yet, at least. Um, and, you know, Kiko and, you know, Facebook, there are dermatology groups. Using some of those sites can be a way to kind of build connections with other dermatopathologists and people that are involved in fellowship training programs. And of course, you got to do some some posters and some some writing up to show that you're able to to manage that stuff. But again, all of you are familiar with that and have done that before. So you know, ask your your dermpath faculty if there's a case that you can write up and you know do a poster. But then you know bring it through to completion and, and, and publish the, the, you know, the full case report or paper. And that's going to be extra impressive, you know, to the, the faculty you work with, but really a lot of it is about those uh, interpersonal connections and getting to know the program director and the other faculty and showing them that you're going to be uh, a person who's responsible, that makes the service run, that helps, you know, that, that, that helps make sure nothing falls through the cracks. I mean, I always have said a, a good fellow reverses entropy, like knowing that the, just the fellow's presence there is going to make it more likely that things will be organized and that I won't mess anything up. And it's totally true. Like there's just an extra set of eyes on what I'm doing, an extra person checking the make sure I don't have typos. A person that if I say, can you figure out what happened with this case, then I don't have to think about it again because I know they're going to come back to me tomorrow or the next day and say, I looked into this and here's what the situation is. And we found the slides or whatever it was. And so being as helpful as possible, it's not just about having great diagnostic skills, but knowing that you're going to be a really, you know, a, a part of the team that contributes to making the, the service go smoothly and with safety and excellent care for patients, that's crucial. And also, are you going to be someone that, that the faculty you're going to want to sit with and talk to at the scope for hours. And you can begin to build that kind of, you know, reputation as being someone who's great and easy to work with. The first time you're on DermPath rotation, just by being engaged, asking good questions, you know, for me, I always had to work on not being too talkative. Some people have the opposite problem where they don't want to speak up because they're afraid of being wrong. You know what? Let me give you advice. Be wrong at the microscope when you're in training because no one will get hurt or die if you guess the wrong answer and the attending says, no, it's not melanoma. That's a congenital pattern nevus. When you're just starting out, hey, it's okay. You make mistakes. I, you know, Don't be afraid to be a little bit bold, but be wrong. You will learn from that and you'll be engaged. And I don't know, maybe I'm not right, but that's my opinion. I'm sticking to it. So, 
No, no, that's a great opinion. Great tips for matching in Durham Path Fellowship. But any fellowship, those tips are going to really help you out. So that was awesome. So Dr. Gardner, about out of time. But just one more question I have to ask. If you couldn't be a doctor, what career would you choose and why? Oh, gosh. I guess I would choose two options. One, the more fantasy option that's very unrealistic. I'd, l- I'd love to be a metal guitarist in a metal band. I love metal and, and hardcore music. And I actually did get a guitar. I've, I've dabbled for years and I finally got a newer electric guitar and an amp. And I was like, I'm going to start getting serious. And I'm in my 40s now. Got to pick up a new skill. And I've been working for a long, long time. I need to like work a little less, play a little more. So I'm going to try to learn how to play like some good metal guitar, but more seriously, I guess I would, I would love to be like a translator or a linguist. I love language. And I've, another thing I've started in, in my uh, last three years, since I moved to my new job is I've started uh, practicing language every day. I, I either do Spanish or Arabic. I go back and forth between them. And then sometimes if I'm going to another country, I'll take a few months off. Like I did five months of German earlier this year. Cause I went and gave a talk in Germany and it's just been such a fun way to connect to other cultures. So I, I think if that was like my full-time job either studying language or or learning language to to be a translator or a diplomat or something anything to do with language i've just been fascinated by and i think that if i had a totally non-medical job that would be a really cool uh, job to have those are some fun careers. If you ever leave them out of pathology, and please don't, but if you ever do, I recommend maybe uh, you could become a YouTube prankster or a fashion model, but <laughs> specifically specifically for Paisley Ties. Okay? I love it. I think that'd be a great job for you. So, Dr. Gardner, thank you again. Such an awesome episode, jam-packed with educational pearls and tips on how to match in a fellowship. So really appreciate you joining with me. Thanks for having me.